0: Welcome to Art Scoping, I'm your host, Max Anderson.
1: We are part of an industry that encompasses caterers, lighting designers, grips, transportation, and, you know, we all came from somewhere. Very, very few of us came from a place of privilege.
0: That's award-winning actress, Sarah Winter, who was born in Newcastle, New South Wales, the daughter of Helen Cummings, a worker in the Newcastle Registry of the Family Court of Australia, and an author, and Stuart Winter, a physician. Her grandmother, Joy Cummings, was the Lord Mayor of Newcastle and Australia's first female Lord Mayor. Sarah moved to New York when she was 17 to study acting and would soon be cast as a guest star in Sex and the City, followed by many other roles in television, including on Californication, Law and Order Special Victims Unit, as Kate Warner, playing opposite Kiefer Sutherland on the television drama 24, as Beth on Windfall, as Keitha on Flight of the Concords, and in dozens of other shows she was nominated for a screen actors guild award for her role in 24 she joins us from her home in westchester welcome sarah
1: thank you for having me
0: i'm so glad we could get you on this rainy day is it raining in westchester
1: it certainly is it's one of those days you just want to curl cool up with a blanket and watch
0: the tv <laughs> right happily the pandemic has given you every right to do that and Like every other sector of the economy, your industry, the acting industry, has been hit hard during the pandemic, and it started with the big reveal back in March that Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson had contracted it in your native Australia, I would add. Would you recap how the shutdown affected production schedules and auditions over the spring and summer and now into the fall?
1: Right, that's so true, Rita and Tom Hanks were two of the first celebrity type people to contract the virus. And there's a lot of production in Australia, especially up north where they were shooting. And I think it pretty much for the first time ever, everything shut down worldwide in terms of television, whether it be Vancouver or Los Angeles or New York or in Queensland in Australia where Tom and Rita were. Basically everything just went dark, including Broadway. Mm. And it was sudden. And it was shocking and we had no idea that <laughs> mid-October we would still, you know, I mean, it, production has slowly crept back for television and film, very gradual, very slowly in the last couple of weeks. Sadly, Broadway, they just announced the earliest it may come back is June in 2021, which is devastating for New York and for that whole industry of, you know, actors and, and the restaurants and, you know, everything related to hotels going to the theater. You know, it's just been dead.
0: Sarah, when you say production has restarted in the last couple of weeks, are you saying actors are wearing surgical masks and kissing each other through their masks?
1: Well, interestingly enough, (laughs) the actors may not be, but the sets, you know, they call them skeleton sets where unless you absolutely have to be on set, uh, you are not invited They keep it very minimal. The actors are not all sort of sitting together in their director's chairs chatting. You basically have a shower curtain between you and, you know, I've seen some pictures from productions in Los Angeles and New York where there's a clear shower curtain between you and the other actors. And, you know, everyone on set, um, makeup, hair, directors, assistant directors, camera, lighting, is wearing a, a face shield or at least a mask. And they're managing, you know, they're back. And interestingly enough, masks are now a part of the story. You know, I, I was hearing from one of the writers on Law and Order SVU in that the actors will walk into a scene and be taking off their mask or as they walk out of the scene, they'll be putting one on or the background mm-hmm. people will be wearing masks because that's just sort of the reality we're in. When that show says it's, their stories are ripped from the headlines, they're, they're not kidding. You know, that's just real life right now.
0: Right. And not every shower curtain leads to a psycho plot, in other words.
1: No. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. You mentioned psycho. I watched that the other night with my son, who was desperate to see it. And and of course, he hid under the covers as soon as anything scary happened. Yeah. So, you know, ultimately, I watched it by myself. But yeah, no, no psycho. Got it. No psycho scenes. We hope so we far. Hope.
0: Well, you know, many of our listeners are are in the art world, and the art world has been forced to rethink its business practices with cancelled art fairs and exhibitions and shuttered galleries and only very compromised museum reopenings. What do you think the film and television industry will eventually be like? Will it return unchanged or will it be different?
1: We're coming back. We're going to come back. There's too many talented people and incredible writers and stories yet to be told. I think... What people have discovered is, and this is a good and a bad thing, but people, I think, are realizing you can put together some great content with less people, which I guess means less waste, but in another way, it means less people are on the payroll, so that's not a good thing. I think, you know, until we get a vaccine, we just have to be creative. I mean, I know soap operas, for example, are, and this sounds funny, everyone's in a close-up, so... Actors are standing twelve feet apart. It looks like they're standing right next to each other. So mm. people have had to be very creative and they're doing love scenes with mannequins, or <laughs> they've been invited to allow their spouse or their partner to come and stand in so that they can have these, you know, I guess someone dons a wig or they only show them from the back. So so you can have a safe
0: right. love scene. What are those called um, in prisons when people can do that? God, I don't know. Conjugal visits. So you can have a conjugal oh, visit. <laughs>
1: A conjugal visit on set. Okay. I mean, it could be worse. That that doesn't sound right. too bad. But I guess it remains to be seen, you know, whether we go back to completely crowded sets where you can all huddle around. You know, some sets are very, they're very intimate. You know, sometimes, you know, if you're filming a scene in a cave or even in an office, you know, right. or a bedroom, it's, it's a lot of people jammed in there. And, you know, I think they're trying to figure out ways to just lessen the, the number of people in, in a space.
0: Well, speaking of crowded in spaces, Let's talk about the ballooning popularity of streaming services during the pandemic. How has that affected long-range thinking about the theatrical release of films? And what's the difference from your point of view as an actor between being seen on the silver screen versus the the 48-inch screen?
1: You know, for me, I mean, I've just become pretty much a television actor in that there's so much more content right now, especially with these streaming Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime platforms. And the writing is incredible. You know, it's incredible for women. There are so many more stories. There's so much more that's available. And, you know, I'm a mum of three. I don't think I've been to a movie theatre to see a film that I wanted to see (laughs) in maybe a decade. I actually love watching Movies from home. I love what's available on television. You know, I just think there's such a rich choice. Of things to watch. And I think people have really embraced that during the pandemic. It's like, we've all been told it's okay to stay home and watch Netflix. I mean, I'm in heaven. I absolutely love nothing more than watching a great show, binging a great new show. And for now, we're lucky. There's so much that's on the menu that's still yet to be seen. I think, you know, I don't think anyone's running out of stuff to watch. The fact that some films have decided to air early and on one of these streaming devices is lovely for the audience. I don't know how it impacts the film industry financially. I'm not on that side of the business. I think, you know, other films like the Bond film, that wants a theatrical release and they're going to keep delaying that until they can roll that film out, Mm -hmm. you know, around the world in theatres. And and that makes sense. You know, the Bond franchise has got such a long history and pedigree that it would warrant that. For me personally, as a viewer, I don't know. Call me crazy. I like staying at home and watching TV.
0: (laughs) (laughs) What about with your actor friends around the country and around the world? What are they doing differently to keep themselves occupied beyond sitting on the couch?
1: You know, I think podcasts have become a great platform for people to stay connected to fans, to connect with other actors. I've been listening to, and I love your podcast. By the way, I love that you're doing this and. And this is my first podcast guest appearance, I guess, I guess that's what it's called. So I'm I'm thrilled. (laughs) I've been listening to Rob Lowe has a new podcast called Literally, and I'm really enjoying it. He's been around for a while. He's had a really interesting career, you know, from teen heartthrob to film star to TV star. And the great thing about Rob Lowe is he talks and he has great stories and he's a great storyteller and he's a great name dropper. He's not bashful about dropping the names of people he's met and people he's worked with and telling stories. And he's a little gossipy and he's the perfect person to host a podcast. He also gets great guest stars, you know, old friends and old co-stars that he's worked with. And I'm really enjoying that. So I love the podcast. I also love that actors are reuniting and doing readings Steve Martin and Diane Keaton recently did one for Father of the Bride where the entire cast got together and I can't quite remember if it was a, if they recreated one of the Father of the Bride films or they did a reunion or it was a sequel. I'm not exactly sure, but I just love the fact that they did it. And the cast of Mean Girls recreated a scene, a very funny scene from the Tina Fey movie, which it was so brilliant. And it's like 20 years old now. It's hard to believe that Mean Girls <laughs> is 20 years old. And all these, all these young yeah. girls have grown up and got married and having children. And they um, got together and do that. And I think that's really fun for the fans mm-hmm. to, yeah. to see. You know, everyone is looking for something as a creative outlet. And these things keep the fans involved and they're entertaining.
0: And speaking of life passages, I just wanted to back up because you moved to the States at the tender age of 17, which was a bold choice. <laughs> well, <And I'm>, well
1: <laughs> I, I didn't move at 17. I visited and I just happened to not go home yet.
0: <laughs> right. Well, <laughs> it's nevertheless. turned into a
1: very long trip.
0: <laughs> so far, it's been a while. What were, at the time, the biggest cultural differences you had to adapt to? And what, if anything, remains exotic about your adopted country to this day?
1: So... In 1991, when I arrived in New York City, it, there had yet to be, be this Australian invasion of actors. So this was pre-Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise and Russell Crowe. And there were very few big Australian stars here. And so one of the big things was I told I had to, you know, do everything I could to eliminate my accent. And take on the American accent, which is important. If you're gonna live and try and make a career as a, as an actor in America, you better bloody well know how to, you know, speak like a, an American. And that makes sense. But it was considered such a, a drawback for me to be Australian, you know, back then. And now it's like, oh, you're Australian, how great, you know. <laughs> like, of course you can do an American accent. You know, they all do. And I think the things that were exotic then and still are now are. Chinese food in a white carton, that's very American and very New York. No other country in the world will you get Chinese in a white, like fold up carton. Like that is just something you grow up seeing in the movies, you know, where Americans have Chinese food. And I think yellow taxis are another very sort of New York thing. I mean, all my references are New York rather than American in general, because that's where I landed. I moved to Los Angeles in 1997, and I stayed for 10 years and loved it. Absolutely loved living in LA. I think largely because of the weather. It's fantastic to be able to wear a T-shirt in January. You know, after living in New York, that was pretty special. (laughs) As an actor who was focused on film and television, it made sense to be there. And also, you know, when you're Australian, just living that much closer to Australia. It was still a 16-hour flight, but much closer than, say, living in New York. So. Mm -hmm. Those were three big reasons that Los Angeles was was so good to me. But I live in New York now, but I pretty much work wherever. They tend to rarely shoot a commutable distance from your home. You know, you're always on a plane. or
0: Work you have, you've so many credits in your work as an actress, but your starring role in all 24 episodes of 24 was especially notable. In what was the longest-running U.S. espionage or counterterrorism-themed television drama, when you look back at that series in light of the current administration's anomalous attitudes to global conflict and its obliviousness to domestic terrorism, does the series still feel relevant, or is it more of a bygone chapter in entertainment history?
1: I can't believe it was one of the longest runnings. That's That's amazing to hear. I think... I think it's absolutely still relevant. It's a show I'm really proud of. And interestingly, during the pandemic, it continues to be one of those shows that people love to binge, you know. Mm-hmm. I've got friends that are saying, oh, I'm watching it with my kids. I had no idea you were on it. It's so great. It's amazing. It's gripping. It's And this is 20 years old now. I think it's 20 years old. They shot the pilot just before 9-11. And when 9-11 happened, they didn't think the series would run. They just didn't think it had a chance because it was too too close to what was going on. It was too, too relevant. It was too scary. It was too much. And they, they didn't think audience would be able to handle it. And, you know, thankfully the network went for it and the studio proceeded and it became this long running cultural phenomenon. And I think it's so interesting the, you know, what you say about domestic terrorism. And I mean, it just last week, was it last week or this week? There's so much news coming at me. I, I lose track, but you know, this—they call them a militia, but it was a domestic terrorism group. Tr- tr- tried to right. kidnap uh, the governor, governor of Michigan. Of Michigan. It, it just defies logic that anyone would deny that this is a problem, and so frightening. And were it not for the FBI and you know some tip-offs, they they may have very well have gotten away with it. This was a large group, and they were organized, and I think. Unfortunately, I think it does keep shows like 24 and Homeland maybe, you know, relevant for sure.
0: Now, work is work. And in a time of scarcity, you might today be open to roles that wouldn't necessarily be your first choice. But what kinds of roles do you find most rewarding at this point in your career?
1: I just love a good story. I, you know, it's less about the role and some, you know, more about how does this character fit into this story? And Is there something interesting or something that resonates with me? I gravitate to comedy a little bit now, maybe because things are so depressing. (laughs) And I've done very little comedy, but the comedy I have done, I've had so much fun with. And I think, you know, casting directors...
0: Flight of the oh, Concords was God. a highlight for all of us. and absolutely.
1: Oh, Flight of the Conchords. So when I shot that, I just had a baby. I had no idea about this show. I had never heard of it. I didn't know what it was. <laughs> I did it. I thought it was bizarre. But I really kind of went over the top with this very crass, you know, really gross Australian character. You know, Australia and New Zealand have these very competitive natures with each other. The show was written from the perspective of these two Kiwis. And they made fun of me you know I was mercilessly mocked mm-hmm. and I had cousins in Australia that just could not believe I got on Flight of the Concords and just thought it was fantastic and you know I've done so much drama and so much seriously dark content I, w- I would love to do some more mm-hmm. some more comedy but frankly I just love to get a job you know <laughs> <laughs> um, before this pandemic does us all in you know and I die of boredom I, I'll play anything.
0: Other people in your industry have gotten jobs. There's a guy in the Oval Office, a oh, reality you TV don't star. Say. Yeah. And mm. so it's axiomatic that those in the entertainment industry can command a voice in public policy. Now, media observers sometimes question the effectiveness of celebrities weighing in on politics coming from a position of privilege. Is that concern misplaced in your view?
1: I think it is. absolutely misplaced. I think it's, it really actually bothers me. As an actor, you don't hang your citizenship at the door just because you are in the Screen Actors Guild. You know, we are allowed to have opinions like anyone. And we are allowed to care about the issues that the country is dealing with. And I think this attitude that we are somehow privileged or elite because we are actors and we're out of touch is frankly absurd. I think most of the actors I know started out sweeping the aisles at a local cinema. We started out waiting tables as carpenters. I mean, people think that, you know, at an award show, you know, you're all very glamorous and you're dressed up and up there pontificating about, you know, wildfires and climate change. Well, these things matter to us, but we borrowed that dress. We are part of an industry that encompasses caterers, lighting designers, grips, transportation. And, you know, we all came from somewhere. Very, very few of us came from a place of privilege and I think it's completely misdirected. I think it's really unfair. It's mm-hmm. like everyone uh, it's almost like everyone sh- you know should be allowed to have an opinion except the actors, you know, <laughs> just act. <laughs> you know, if a plumber has an opinion, no one goes, "Hey, just plumb. Just just keep on plumbing. <laughs> no one cares what you think, you know. But no, for some reason actors are not supposed to, you know, do anything but act and read read the lines you've been given.
0: Why? What How dare you, you have an opinion? What do you attribute that to? Is it jealousy? What is it that Inspired, I, but.
1: You know, I think it's just that thing. I think people think because we look like maybe we ride around in limos or we live in mansions, you know, I certainly don't live in a mansion and plenty of actors I know do not. But some do and some have found success and doesn't mean they're disconnected from life and the issues that we're facing. You know, it doesn't mean that we are all living in a castle having caviar and talking about little people, you know, it's, I don't know. I, I just think it's weird. I think it's, it's, it's judgmental and it must be stopped.
0: It must be stopped. Well, fair enough. But is <laughs> there a say, difference? <laughs> <laughs> is there a difference between the ways that Americans talk about this and the way that Australians do in respect to the concept of privilege? Americans don't believe in class, in the concept of class. Right. Instead. They slash we worship at the altar of upward mobility. But in the Commonwealth, I don't think that's the way people tend to think. Is that true?
1: People, (laughs) at least in Australia and Canada, I mean I'll speak, you know, as an Australian, we we don't have a sense of privilege, even though I feel like if you're born and raised in Australia, you're you'd be unprivileged, but we have this thing called the tall puppy syndrome where you don't puff yourself up with pride. You know, pride is considered quite. Um, I
0: just want to make sure our listeners know what you mean. P O P P Y rather than P U P P Y. When you say puppy.
1: Oh yes. Not a, not a, not a puppy dog, a pu- puppy being the flower. Yeah. yeah. Because
0: the scary thing it's is kind that, of, that that's about chopping off the tallest poppy in the field.
1: Yes. The t- yes. So the tall puppy syndrome is sort of meant to describe this cultural phenomenon of mocking people. Who think highly of themselves you know and we do not like people who boast in australia so you cut down the tallest poppy mm-hmm. um very common in australia and New here we Zealand. make
0: them president well.
1: here we make them president but um you know it's so weird in australia we don't you know it's it's frowned upon to be proud of even who you are or where you're from or or, or what you've become you know we you know it's much cooler to be self-deprecating you know you must be self-deprecating you must you know make fun of yourself poke fun of yourself don't be a show-off that's considered really, you know, ugly. I mean, you can root for your, your home team, but um, anything beyond that is just, it's gauche, you know, it's not considered cool at all. So I think that's quite, that's quite different. You know, America has pride, pride in the country, and we are the best and we are the, we will win and we lead the world. And we, we just don't have that. We have the best healthcare, by the
0: way. I don't know if you knew
1: that. Well, (laughs) well, (laughs) you know, (laughs) <laughs> that's that's up for debate, Max. Um, we just we're, we're kind of like the younger sibling to America. You know, we're like the giggly younger sibling who's like, okay, you know, yep, keep going, keep talking. Although we respect and love America, we're your ally. We've been your ally in every major war. You know, we well, we
0: haven't been a great ally to you the last three years and change.
1: Yeah, no, not really. No, thanks. Um, <laughs> but hopefully, you know, <laughs> you'll make up for that.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's just uh, a what- yeah. A few days till the election, so we're all watching with bated <sighs> breath, as I'm sure people are yes, in Australia yeah. and Canada. and all,
1: Yeah, Australia. very much. You know, we're, we're very much invested in what happens here. You know, my country, um, I mean, America is my country now. I'm an American citizen. I'm, I also retain Australian citizenship. My, my sons have Australian passports. I very much have a foot in both countries, but I live here. I work here. I have three Australian-American sons who who are being raised here. And I, I'm hopeful that that things will get better because they have to.
0: You have not only opinions about the right of people in your industry to speak out, but you're very active in various causes, including Moms Demand Action, which is a grassroots movement fighting for public safety measures that can protect people from gun violence. Can you talk a bit about that cause and about your hopes for progress in gun control?
1: I would love to. I've been a member of Moms Demand Action since right after it was formed. And it was started by the incredible Shannon Watts on her Facebook page in her kitchen after the Sandy Hook massacre in Newtown, Connecticut. And it has grown into, we have nearly, I think nearly 6 million supporters. We have chapters in every state of the country and we basically campaign for stronger solutions to our gun laws, which are very lax, and to closing the loopholes that put in jeopardy the safety of American citizens. And I have campaigned on behalf of Mums Demand Action. It's part of Every Town, which was bankrolled by Mike Bloomberg, who was a, has been a gun sense advocate for decades. He was one of the initial mayors that started uh, Mayors Against Illegal Guns which has now become Everytown slash Moms Demand Action. And uh, it's a cause I'm very passionate about. I think it's important to mention that Moms Demand Action is not anti-Second Amendment. We have plenty of gun owners and gun enthusiasts that are members that support what we're doing. We support candidates that are running for office that are for stronger gun laws. And I think, you know, we have a long way to go, but we're getting there. And we're going state by state um, in these uh, smaller elections. You know, hopefully we wind up with a, a gun sense advocate in the White House come 2021. It's beyond all recognition what the Second Amendment was and, it, and should be. It's been hijacked by the NRA and it's become a business. And the NRA pretty much are for gun, gun manufacturers rather than the rights of their members. They don't even stand for their, for their members anymore. The gun lobby is it's very wealthy and they are all about money. They're all about protecting money. And the more people that have guns, the better. And, you know, whether children are dying in school or being shot in playgrounds or domestic abusers are able to get guns, felons are allowed to get guns. These automatic weapons are are available. They they don't care. They don't care about the cost of human life. They only care about making money and electing like-minded politicians Mm -hmm. to protect them.
0: Filmmaking, television making is such a powerful facet of American life. Are there productions that you've been involved with or you would like to see that could start to change people's minds in the world of fiction, in the world of acting and narrative that might be helpful in this cause?
1: You know, I think it's a topic that comes up occasionally there's been some good films made. Not a lot. I mean, it's not perhaps the sexiest topic. People want to sort of go go to a movie. I, you know, I don't know. You know, I read a pilot for a series about five or six years ago that I was very interested in. It was Network. It was about the gun lobby. And it didn't, it wasn't ordered for a season. Um, it didn't go anywhere. It didn't get picked up, which was disappointing. And that could be for a multitude of reasons, not just the subject, but it is a subject that people do care about. I think it's something people are invested in. It's not a topic that isn't discussed in debates. It's a, it's a, it's one of the leading topics now, which is great. So I think time will tell, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm hopeful that it can, you know, be included. I mean, there's plenty of documentaries and content, you know, about the subject. We'll see where that leads.
0: Sarah, how can our listeners best find you online?
1: Oh, well, I'm on Instagram and Twitter (laughs) I'm on Instagram Um, is that what you mean like yeah um, sure yeah oh okay yeah Sarah Winter official uh, S-A-R-A-H-W-Y-N-T-E-R Winter with a Y official on Instagram and on Twitter god what am I on Twitter I think I'm Sarah I think I'm Sarah Winter god I should know right is not that terrible what kind of a self-promoter am I (laughs) hold on I'm just checking I think I'm Sarah Winter yeah, I'm Sarah Winter. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, on Twitter, I'm at Sarah Winter. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay. Um, face- Facebook, I keep pretty private. It's all school and it's all kids and no one wants to see that. And I'm trying to give up Facebook, as I think we all should.
0: Yeah, um, it's, it's like refined sugar.
1: It's yeah, I know. And it's such a time suck. Oh, my God. And we all have too much time on our hands right now. We should it, be getting off social media and reading books.
0: <laughs> or seeing you on the screen. And Sarah, thank you for making time today to tell us a bit about what you've done and where you're heading and really appreciate your making time. Oh my
1: gosh, thank you so much and thank you for doing this.
0: We've been speaking today with award-winning Australian-born actress Sarah Winter. Until next time, this is Max Anderson of Artscoping. If you like what you heard, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts.